our goal was to get the children a good secondary school education. And we started by sponsoring six children and finding a good school for them. And that's when we met probably the most important person for Africans, which is a gentleman named Katoy, who works for us now on the ground in Tanzania. We knew him as a safari guide, and he became the person on the ground and helped us find the proper school for these six children at that time. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am very happy to welcome Lori Pickle Evans and Ian McCluskey to the My Fourth Act podcast. Lori is a former partner in a law firm in Boca Raton here in Florida. Ian is a veteran journalist, thought leader champion, and corporate storyteller. Both have an entirely different next act in their lives, which is one of the many reasons why I wanted to speak with them. Lori founded AfriKids a Miami-based nonprofit that is dedicated to helping educate and improve the lives of kids in the Arusha region of Tanzania. Laurie and Ian met a little over six years ago, became romantic partners, and Ian these days serves as the communications director for AfriKids. So you joined a cause that was started by Laurie and that interests me in many, many ways. So welcome, Laurie and Ian. Thank you. Thank you, Ahim. Great to be with you. Uh, so look forward to this conversation. I want to spend a bunch of time talking about AfriKids, but before we go there, I always had this thought, well, neither one of you probably envisioned when you were growing up that you would be part of something called AfriKids. So, Lori, take me back to when you were a young girl, a teenager, and, you know, mom and dad want to know what you want to do with your life. Like, how did you answer that question? I grew up in Ohio and we had horses and my passion all through middle school, high school was horseback riding, showing, competing on horses. Yeah. My middle school and high school had this most incredible art department and I was very involved in art in high school and my horses. So that was really what my childhood, my teenage years revolved around. When I went to college, my first year I was an art major. I realized that really wasn't what I wanted to continue doing, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went into business thinking anything I can do, you know, I can use that degree for all kinds of things. I didn't really have a passion. I thought I would just always have horses and be an equestrian and maybe be an artist someday. When I got out of college, I decided to go to law school. Brought me to Miami and fast forward, here I am. I'm chuckling because you realize going from art and horses to law school is not an obvious leap, right? <laughs> it's not. No, it was, it was quite a giant leap, but it was a great leap. And we'll talk later about art because one of the beautiful things in your life is that art is back in what you do and can't wait to talk about it. When you were a younger fellow, what were you thinking about as you thought about your grown-up life? Yeah, no horses in my life, but I was really good at languages, unlike anybody else in my family. 
my parents and my brothers and sisters included. So I was always thinking about living in other places. I didn't think about traveling. I mean, traveling to me seemed superficial. What I was interested in was living in other places. So I moved to France when I was 19 for a year and then and studied French. And then well, I moved to uh, Brazil. So I did an international business degree in Phoenix, Arizona. But I'm from Canada. So that got me out of the cold in Canada, <laughs> took me to a completely different culture. Ended up in Brazil and Chile and ended up back in Miami 20 years ago, but spent a lot of time uh, living abroad. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I ended up doing. Nice. I appreciate that deep motivation. I went to Arizona because of the weather. So, <laughs> well, it was a place called. <laughs> yeah, I know it's deeper than that. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. It was a pamphlet that fell out at the library one day in Toronto when it was in February and it was called Sun Valley. It turned out to be a wonderful business school, the Thunderbird Business School, but it is in a place called Sun Valley, which in Toronto in February is very appealing. I have been in Toronto in February. It can be brutal. <laughs> I want to briefly talk about your previous careers before we go to Africans. And Laurie, you and I had a pre-chat before this. I love it because you made it clear to me that you were probably one of the few lawyers, I'm paraphrasing, you said, who actually really loved being a lawyer. What is it that you enjoyed about practicing law. What was that? One of my passions when I got out of law school and during law school was I did an internship at public defender's office. I enjoyed criminal law. I sort of had this belief that I could help and save the world possibly through being a lawyer and I could do all these wonderful things. I went into private practice. I worked at a small firm that did criminal law work, and we also did personal injury work. And I sort of felt we were helping the underdogs in both those areas of law. And I did that for about four or five years. And then when I decided I want to have a family, I realized that being a litigator, being at the mercy of a judge's orders and rules and calendar is difficult to have a family. So I switched and I switched to do sort of corporate transactional work. That transition was actually, it wasn't easy, but it worked better to have children and have family. Help me make the leap now, because <laughs> I understand the family part, but you yes. know, going from that to let me do some work in Africa is another not obvious leap. With you, we're going from equestrian law and then you go to Africa. Help me make the leap from Boca Raton to I want to do some work that's really socially important in Africa. How did that start? It actually wasn't Boca Raton. It was Coral Gables. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's okay. We had two offices and we did have a sub office, a smaller office in Boca Raton that I would commute to a few okay. days a week. My ex-husband's family business is based in Africa. So when we went on our honeymoon in 1983, it was the first time I ever traveled abroad. The first time I had ever been to Africa, well, obviously I've ever been to Africa, and I fell in love with Africa. I fell in love with the people. We did an incredible safaris. We lived in a house there and got to meet lots of people in the community. We were in Kenya. Fast forward, we took our children when they graduated from high school. Both of those children picked that as their place to go for their high school graduation trip. And in between that, I had traveled to Africa many, many years but I had not gotten involved in the education of the school children until my oldest daughter went to Tanzania as she was volunteering through a program. After she graduated college, she did her backpack abroad through Europe with her 
then boyfriend, now husband. And they went through a volunteer company and spent a month volunteering at a small little school in Tanzania. And that sort of jump-started our Africans. I'm also just getting such a picture of how your daughter certainly was introduced to Africa from a young age on, and, and that clearly was part of her life. Now, what was the first project you undertook? Did you come up with what Africans who created that? Just take us to the very, very beginning. We went, my daughter and Bobby, her husband, talked about this small school, described it in an area called Usa River, which is just outside of Arusha. Mm-hmm. It was a trees with plastic tarp around it and some rugs on the ground. And that was a classroom. And it was all preschool students. And they talked about bringing the children in and teaching and how they had to go to the store to buy paperboard to write letters and things like that. They just fell in love with the children. They left coming home talking about how they wanted to take two of the children and put them in an English curriculum type school. We went back, my ex-husband and I went back several months later to visit the school while we were doing some work in Africa or in Tanzania, got to meet the children and got to meet the director and saw this huge need at this very poor and impoverished school and got involved that way. One more question before we bring Ian into the conversation. So got involved, did that mean we're sponsoring a child or two, we're supporting them for the next educational step? Is that what it looked like? Yes. So we, there were six children that were ready to leave the preschool and go on to what they call primary school. Those six children, we put them in an English curriculum boarding school where they could get three meals a day, where they would live at the school, where they had dorms, they would get an English curriculum school. So primary school is very important to be taught in English if you can, because When children leave primary school in Tanzania and go on to secondary school, they switch from Kiswahili in the government school to English, and that's when they lose all of the children. There's about 30-some percent of students in Tanzania that ever graduate from secondary school, which is sort of our elementary school. So that's when most of their students drop out of school. So our goal was to get the children a good secondary school education. We started by sponsoring six children and finding a good school for them. And that's when we met probably the most important person for Africans, which is a gentleman named Katoy, who works for us now on the ground in Tanzania. We knew him as a safari guide, and he became the person on the ground and helped us find the the proper school for these six children at that time. Can I just interject one little point? It's super important. Anytime. These six kids that you started with, and others that joined the program later are from extremely poor backgrounds. Yes. Most of them are orphans. Some of them have lost one parent to AIDS and some two parents, and some have just been abandoned. So all these kids were in extremely dire conditions and situations. Now, and we won't talk about this now, but later we will, these kids are now 17, 18, and 19 years old. They're still in the Africans program. There's a lot more kids in the Africans program. Before we continue... Yeah, that for kids. I'm glad you just chimed in. For our listeners, I know Ian socially in Miami, and I have appreciated just what a great, expansive thinker you are, among many other things. But part of interviewing you, I did a little bit of research. I knew about your background, but I'm going to throw some. You already mentioned your interest in languages and other cultures. You mentioned Chile. 
but you were, I didn't know this, a South American correspondent for Time Magazine for a while. You were the Sao Paulo bureau chief for Bloomberg News. So this is my very traditional media. And then you moved into managing more thought leadership enterprises and some of them based in Miami. So if you think back about it, because suddenly I'm connecting the dots and you can see all of this is really helpful for Africans and the work you're doing, right? But take us back to what's the moment that stands out for being a journalist in Latin America as a Canadian born who went to Sun Valley and then you suddenly were living and working in South America, which is uh, not an obvious journey either. Yeah, you mentioned Time Magazine. I think that the five years I spent as a correspondent for Time Magazine, we're probably the, the high. It's a great organization. It used to be the pinnacle of print journalism in the United States. Yeah. And in Latin America, Time was everywhere, super respected. So it opened every door imaginable. But I got to do some of the craziest stories. I remember once getting a call from an editor in New York. I love this guy. He'd come from People Magazine. And he said to me, Ian, I'm imagining a tree growing up through the asphalt, abandoned highway in the Amazon. Can you find that spot for me? And I said, absolutely. You know, I'll get right on it. I mean, he wanted stories from the remotest parts of the country. Number one story was probably the best two weeks of my journalism career. I was in the Amazon hanging in a hammock for 10 days with a New York Times photographer. And we were waiting out to see if we could discover and see this tribe or this isolated tribe of Indians that had been spotted mm -hmm. in the region. And so we were there with Indian trackers and so on for 10 days. It was amazing, right? But it was really uncomfortable and hot. And the, the food we killed, I mean, the trackers killed wild turkeys and we roasted that over a fire. Anyway, it was quite an extraordinary experience. But after 10 days, I just wanted to get back home, which was Brasilia, where I lived, the capital of Brazil. And we were in a Western Amazon. So we took a 12-hour truck ride out to the nearest airport in Cuiabá. And I phoned into the... We didn't have cell phones back. It was 1994 or five. We didn't have cell phones. So I called in at the time office and they said, oh my God, we're so glad you, you called in. Could you please go? We need you in the Galapagos Islands on Wednesday. This was because there was an uprising in the Galapagos Islands. The locals were threatening to kill the tortoises and blah, blah, blah. And I said, absolutely not. I'm really tired. I want to go home. I want to sleep in my own bed. I want to have a bath. No, thank you very much. And I hung up the phone. And then I realized that was the stupidest thing I'd ever, you know, <laughs> ever said to anyone. So I called him right back and I said, of course, I'll be there. So I flew to Brasilia. And then from there, I flew to Sao Paulo, from there to Quito, from Quito to Guayaquil, from Guayaquil to the Galapagos Islands. Before reading, I had no idea what Galapagos Islands really were. I'd never thought of going there. So anyway, and I spent a whole week there. I mean, driving around on my boat, my bicycle and taking boats to the various islands and interviewing people. That became a great story in Time Magazine. To me, that was like living the, the ultimate foreign correspondent life. I didn't have to cover wars or massacres, but extraordinary adventures. Well, thank you for that wonderful snapshot. I am thinking about living life in extremes. We're all in Miami now, which is, we're spoiled. We have good lives here. And you've both been in parts of the world where it doesn't look that way. I was thinking as you were talking when I lived in Tobago, like every single morning when I woke up, there might be water or there might not be. And you never knew. And I began to appreciate like the pleasure of just having a shower. 
you know, that I took for granted when I lived in the United States. I want to take us to Africa. It's, you two met what I call the modern way because you two have known each other for a while. You are a romantic couple and you also play together in Africa. Now, would one of you just tell us how you two met? Well, I'll, I'll tackle that one, I guess. <laughs> I had been divorced or separated for several years. It's difficult mean. People in Miami in a romantic way are meeting men because I didn't really want to go to bars and yeah. hang out and do that. And my friends all said, we've introduced you to everybody we know, nobody's single. And my daughter said, you should go on Match.com. She got one of her friends to come over and help me do my profile. And there's a secret little button you can push and keep your profile secret. I felt very comfortable. I could look and see who I wanted to converse with. They couldn't, until you do that, they don't get to see your profile. And I, when I read Ian's bio, he was an athlete because he's a marathon runner. And he talked about how he lived all over the world, which just totally intrigued me and was very important to me. He talked about his children and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So we had a few conversations and very just through the chat. And then I think he said, well, can I call you? And I said, well, no, but you could text me. We had a couple texts and pictures going back and forth. And then he sent me a picture from a marathon. He was running with his son. And I went to my daughter's house and I said, you know, this kid looks so familiar. Who was that? Who was your friend and in high school? And they went to a very small high school. And she goes, you mean Alec McCluskey? And I said, yeah, why? <laughs> well, I kind of have a date with his dad in two days. And she was like, oh, my gosh. And, of course, he immediately texts his son and improved the comfort level a lot because I'd known his son for a long time. And he had spent a lot of time in our house. And yeah. That sort of made the first date a little more comfortable. And Yeah, our kids are responsible, really, for us. Being, in lots of ways, yeah. yes. So I'm curious, but how did your kids react when they realized, oh, mom and dad are going to go on a date with each other? What hey, was that like? Samantha texted, my daughter Samantha texted his son, and it was immediately like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Oh, you know, they thought it was great. And we've since had family Christmases with all the kids around and everything. So yeah, it's all been good. They think it's wonderful. Ian, you meet this woman and she has this thing called AfriKids, right? And you'll learn about AfriKids. Like, maybe walk us into, so what did you learn about AfriKids the more Lori introduced you to it? And what got you interested and excited in AfriKids? Because that could have just been Lori's baby, right? But you clearly got excited about the purpose of this project? Well, I always thought it was a great story because it's this grassroots organization that a family created. They really hadn't told the story. They had no interest in telling the story. They were happy to sponsor a bunch of kids. At that point, I think there were 37 kids and their friends were all pitching in. And so, yeah, it was Lori's baby. I didn't really get involved. And Lori will explain from her part, but the pandemic changed everything for both of us. It's what led to the creation of Art for AfriKids, and it's what led to my getting involved in AfriKids. Because up till then, I was working full-time, and the uh, pandemic crashed a lot of businesses, and mine was one of them. I mean, I was, at the time, working for a company based in Spain, but running the, the, the Americas division. It was called uh, Thinking Heads, and you're familiar with that organization. Yes. At least 50% of their business as a speaker agency. So for, you know, we had celebrity speakers, ex-presidents of 
ex-CEOs and ex-presidents of countries who we would accompany to events, conferences all over the Americas. It was really fun. I was busy all the time, though. So when Lori went off to Africa or Tanzania once a year, I, I said, you know, bon voyage and look forward to seeing your pictures and so on. But I didn't get super involved until March 12th of 2020 when <laughs> my business yes. came to a screeching halt. And then Lori will tell you her part. But that's what got me involved. And I started saying to Lori, look, you, what you've got here, what you've created here is amazing. But nobody knows about it except for you and your family and your friends. We need to tell some people because if we do a nice website, which I helped or I created with mm -hmm. Lori's help, you know, I did the website and then we created an Instagram. Everybody wants to see pictures of, you know, beautiful children. Now we have the full panoply of communications tools. It's amazing what the response has been. I mean, we haven't you know, necessarily asked people for donations, but they come because it's a great story. And before we forget to say this, you know, 100% of all the money that comes into Africa, 100%, including all the, the money that comes in through Art for Africa Kids, and Lori will talk more about that in a sec, it goes to pay for education for right now, 102 kids. So I got involved three years ago and Lori became also much, much more involved three years ago when we created something called Art for Africa Kids. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Let's talk about art for Afrikids. Obviously, Afrikids is in there. The art relates to your early passions. And I love, well, I'll let you tell the story, Lori, because it is, to me, it's also a Miami story. Or there's a Miami touch to what you're creating art-wise. Would you describe to us what it is you do? So art for Afrikids, what we create are, we have, we take seashells. And we, through different techniques, paint and decoupage. And we shouldn't um, say we, Lori. It's really... It's myself. It's Lori. I do the artwork. <laughs> Ian does all the other things. Um, but he helps me clean the shells when we get them. He helps me organize the shells. Find the, the shells. shells, yeah. So it really started during COVID with going on walks on a golf course and finding these beautiful brown coconuts that were hollow and dry. And mm -hmm. just saying, oh, these are just beautiful. Let's paint. I'm going to paint them and looking for something to do because you're stuck in your house. So I started working with the coconuts and they're difficult medium to work with. They're a difficult easel to, or palette. But we went on a trip to Sanibel with my grandkids because they were in our little bubble at the time. And we started finding these beautiful seashells. And at the end of the trip, we had so many. I started thinking, gosh, you know, I'm going to try doing this with the shells. So that's sort of how it started. Can I just say three years uh, fast forward, our house is completely covered with seashells yeah. of various varieties <laughs> and sizes. And we get donations of them from friends and families. I have friends that find them at a garage sales or they see on Facebook, somebody's giving them away and they pick them up for me. And I, you know, it's wonderful. 
we still we went to Sanibel after, when it opened up after Hurricane Ian. And went, may, may I just say for our listeners who are not from Florida, Sanibel is this very enchanted, not overly slicked up island off of the west coast of Florida. It's really a throwback to the 1950s and 60s Florida. And that's part of its charm. And you can just roam the beaches there, which is what you're talking about. And it's a sh- considered the shelling capital of Florida. I mean, for some reason, the way the tides work in the Gulf, the beaches just get littered with shells. And we never just take shells that are alive. If we see anything alive, we put them back. But there's just all kinds of dead shells, empty shells there. And we started creating those. And I had a little show outside my front door in the alcove and everyone was safe and just inviting some friends over to buy things for Christmas presents. And they yeah. love them. That was November of 2020. Yeah. And then Ian after this said to me, and I think, you know, maybe we made $400 or something. I don't even know. He said, why don't we do this as a fundraiser for Africans? Let's do this as a fundraiser instead of you just making gifts for your friends or their friends. That's sort of how it all started. Can I tell a little funny story? Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, I'm the one who's always pushing Lori to do stuff, saying, hey, she sort of underestimates her talent, underestimates her value and all sorts of stuff. So I'm the one who keeps saying, you know, we got we to buy a tent, you oh, know, God, a couple of yeah. tables and go to some farmer's markets and art fairs. And she was a little reluctant at first. And, but we did our very first one in April of 2021. Things were starting to open up and we did it outdoors at the Murata Way Art Walk which is fantastic in Isla Morada. We boutique who was selling some of Lori's stuff already because we initially started by placing her stuff in boutiques, but turned out not to be a good business model because yeah. they take, you know, 30 or 40%. So we set up a table outside and we put up all, all of her shells and we had, must've had 150 different shells, different sizes. Boy, that night, I think we sold, well, first of all, we didn't make any money. We probably lost money because the uh, store owner suggested that we buy uh, some Prosecco. Prosecco. And we spent more money buying Prosecco than we did, you know, money in the shop. And this one woman, tourist from somewhere, walked by and said, Oh my God, those are the most expensive ashtrays I've ever seen. And so <laughs> that almost destroyed the whole business. But two days later, we went to a farmer's market, sold several hundred dollars worth of uh, product. And that's where it all started. Then we realized that our stuff or Lori's stuff was really kind of high end. So we ended up going to art shows, some really prestigious art shows. That's sort of where we only hang out now, just at prestigious places and art shows. Well, the word that comes into mind as I'm listening, it's almost a cliche, but I want to say there is something wonderfully holistic about the story that you're telling, right? Because you support an organization called AfriKids that does beautiful work helping children get an education. You're using some of your respective passions and talents to also help fundraise for it. I want to talk for a little bit about what it costs to support an organization like AfriKids. You mentioned over 100 young people who you've been supporting or currently supporting, which is ridiculously impressive. So where does the money come from? We know you talk about Art for AfriKids. I want to talk about marathons because I know you run marathons as well and raise money, which is inspiring. But Lori, like talk about how as you grew Africans and you had to pay for these things, where did you find the money? Before we started Art for Africans, before we had that influx of donations coming in, it was off really families, friends, word of mouth. 
We had 37 children. And I would say all of the sponsors I either personally knew or they're people that Katoy, the gentleman who works for us in Tanzania, met on Safari. And he would talk about it and they would reach out to me and they would want to sponsor a, a child. I have relatives, my uncle, my cousins, they all sponsor children. It's really a very close-knit group of people, yeah. but it has grown with the sponsors by word of mouth and really through Katoy. But then Art for Africa Kids has opened up a whole nother dimension to that because we meet people at the art shows. Mm-hmm. who then find out what is AfriKids, what does it do? And they'll make a donation, they'll pay, their shell may cost $50 and they'll give us a $100 bill, you know, to pay the end. So we've, and we've gotten the word out of AfriKids through Art for AfriKids. It's been a wonderful yeah. um, publicity really and way for people to learn about AfriKids because I have very close friends that I know that, when they hear that, they see me, I didn't know you did this. I didn't know you were involved in AfriKids because I'm a little private about it. I don't want people to think I'm asking them for money or things yeah. like that. So it is a way to put AfriKids out there to more people than the, the art end of And it's been a wonderful source of donations for us. Let me say two things quickly because it's important. First of all, sponsors still provide the bulk probably 60% yes. of the funding each year. So that commitment from a core group of people is extremely important to build any organization. You got to have a commitment from a group of people who are, who believe in it, believe in the mission and so on, and are willing to step up each year. Number two, it costs roughly $1,500 to pay for one child to go to an English language boarding school in Tanzania. Imagine that, $1,500. That's for room, board, and tuition. Now, in between, there's probably another six or eight weeks where we try and look after them. There's kids some other way, you know, like sending and creating right. a camp for them because they have no, many of them have no real homes to go to. But a little bit of money goes an awfully long way in Tanzania. You just recently ran a big marathon. I mean, part of the appeal of the dating profile was that this guy's an athlete, Laurie, right? But but he's now putting his money where his mouth is, so to speak. <laughs> so talk to us about of using a marathon to raise funds as well. I, I think it's such a wonderful connection, Ian. Well, this conversation is really interesting because we've never had a conversation like this with a third party asking us these right. questions. But it is interesting how all the passions that you and yeah. talents that you mentioned earlier have all come are all kind of like dovetailing with AfriKids, right? So everybody uses whatever they got. Laura uses her art, which was her passion until she became a lawyer. And now she's still, and she's passionate about it and it's going for such a great cause. Well, you know, like I said, she was more reluctant. Again, she repeated, I didn't want to ask people for money. I go, why not? If it's for such a great cause, I said, look, I'm going to run the Montreal Marathon. I ran my very first one 43 years earlier. That's pretty crazy. And I'm still doing it 43 years later. And when I started asking people for money, my former boss at Time Magazine, she said, of course, I'll send you a donation. Old man running a marathon (laughs) and beautiful kids in Africa. I mean, who can refuse? That's right. Yeah. And sure enough, you know, so I did complete the marathon. I'm no longer the marathon runner I was 43 years ago, but I still love it. In this case, we raised over $10,000. 
which was great. That just goes so far in Tanzania. So we're looking at other ways to raise money because why not? You know, the more you tell people about Africans, the more people want to chip in. What touches me about the story is that it's it's a very personal mission you're on and it's a very personal way in which you're supporting it. The question that arises is, I don't believe in everything has to be scaled. I believe in sometimes smaller is better. But as more people know about it, do you think, oh, let's have a bigger organization or let's have more officers? I mean, Akim, you're the expert on organizational development. I mean, everything that we've done with Africa Kids in the last few years has been sort of by the seat of the pants and learning because you never had kids sit the national exam to try yeah. and get their A-levels, their advanced senior high school before. We'd never done that. And now next year, they'll be graduating and some of them will be ready for university, which will be another huge challenge. And of course, as they grow up, she, uh, Lori keeps referring to them as children. These are no longer, I mean, many no longer. They're, all, they're still all we, my children. We but. have some younger <laughs> ones, but you know, they're 17, 18, 19. And that, as you know, because if you remember when you were 17, 18, 19, how complicated you were, it brings all sorts of issues. So we're having to deal with those issues now. Many of these kids don't have a family to fall back on. We have to step into... Well, a funny aside story, when they finish their examinations to go into their A-levels, Katoy calls me and says, okay, now what are we going to do with these kids? They have six months before they get placed in high school. We've got to find something to do with them. So we were happened to be in Tanzania at that time. And we talked to them, what would you like to do? Let's go to a trade school. What would you like to learn? We can put you somewhere for six months. And they all were all over the board. And then the more we talked, they all said computer. We found a computer school where they could board for six months and they learned computer skills. They graduated with certificates in Word and Excel and all sorts of computer programs. No matter what career they're going to end up going into, that's a wonderful skill for them to have. The other fun story is when they, when we were there and talking to them about that and they were One taking their exams, yeah. it was a year ago, we said to them, okay, guys, if you work really hard on your exams and do really well, we didn't define what really well was, we will buy you all a cell phone. They were just like shocked. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about a cell phone? So when the 17 got their exams and got placed, we bought them all cell phones and we give them a few minutes or not a few minutes. We give them minutes every three months. They can renew their minutes, which they have to manage. But it's a way for them to communicate with us, with each other mm-hmm. while they're placed. They get placed in high school all over the country. The government places them in high school and they can be a 10 hour to a two day bus ride away from their home in their boarding schools. So it was a way to communicate. And the other thing we did for them at that time was we decided we were going to open bank accounts for them. Mm-hmm. I would say probably none of their guardians or parents have a bank account. We didn't haven't opened them all yet because they didn't all have, they don't have IDs because they don't have birth certificates. So we're working on that, but about half of them now have a bank account. We put $200 in it for them to manage while they're away at school and, you know, teaching them this is a life lesson. You need to have a bank account and learn how to manage your money and you need to have a phone to communicate with people and that type of thing. They're, I mean, the seven, they're incredible children, or adult, <laughs> young adults, but they're incredible. They are very appreciative of everything and they really work very hard and they have all kinds of career aspirations. We have 
a student who wants to be a lawyer. We have one who wants to be a doctor and pilots and safari guides. It's incredible. I really appreciate all those details because it's so clear to me that you're helping to support the entire being beyond just being a student who gets good grades. So thank you for all of that. I want to wrap our conversation in this way. We just, I'm touched by your strong commitment and passion to Africans. But I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests on the podcast is, you clearly both sound like you have adventurous spirits. As you think of your own lives beyond Africans, are the things where you go, oh, this is something else I'd like to explore that maybe I haven't explored before? Is there something else that yearning to happen? And I'm not saying there must be. I'm just curious. I, For me, I would say just travel, more travel and adventures. I love going to remote areas and travel and Ian and I did a wonderful trip last year where we were up in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. It was just incredible. I would, you know, other than my family, my grandchildren, my daughters, I think that the other passion I have in my life besides Africans, and Ian, of course, I have to say Ian, is travel. I didn't travel as much as Ian did growing up, and I didn't travel that much as a young adult. I definitely have one plus. I definitely appreciate you sneaking in the fact that you're a grandmother because I hope our our listeners understand this is a grandmother pursuing some really cool work. Ian, anything on your mind? I'm assuming travel with Lori is part of it, but anything else where you go, oh, I want to do a little more of this perhaps. Yeah, uh, I'll be even more specific than the grandma. I'm not a grandfather yet, but I am 67 years old. Just finished my 12th marathon. I announced to Lori that, you know, I want to do eight more at least, get to 20. So that means one a year for the next eight years or so. It's a triumph, I think, to do a marathon at age 67. And so I would like it to be a triumph at 68, 69. And why not, you know, 75, 76? Yeah. And so that's what I look forward to. And, and by the way, Papua New Guinea was great. The only thing that, that I couldn't do was run on the, because we were on this exploration ship and it was great. But what I was really dying to do was get up and do a sunrise run, you know, on the island somewhere. And I couldn't do that. So I guess that's my one thing. And I'll just add that 43 years ago when I did run with my two best running buddies, they were much better runners than me. But when I said, guys, let's let's do another one you know, back in Montreal, 43. And they went, nah, <laughs> we're all over. We're done with running marathons. If I can continue doing that for a few more years, I'd be very happy. Beautiful. Somehow I don't feel sorry for you not being able to, not being able to run on that ship. You know, you don't have my yeah. sympathy. Fair uh, enough. Where would you like to direct our listeners who want to learn more about Africans or who maybe move to want to donate some money? Um, where can we learn more? Well, we do have uh, the website, www.africidsinc.org. And that's really important because there is another Africids organization in London that I think they do wonderful work in Ghana, but it's africidsinc.org. Facebook is Africids Inc. And also Facebook slash Art for Africids, F-O-R Africids on Facebook. You can see all the wonderful art that, that Lori does. Thank you. And continued success with the wonderful work you do. and. Thank you for the gift of this conversation. I so enjoyed it. Thank Uh, you. Wonderful talking with you. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. 
please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.